Well, this week, we're going to jump back into James. And so turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. Um, and as you recall, as we're looking at the book of the James, the theme of James is genuine faith on display. Genuine faith on display. This is what genuine faith looks like, James says. And he goes through the book giving a series of characteristics of, or marks of genuine faith. So one by one, he'll take different sections and talk about it. If you're a believer, if you know Christ, this is what your life will look like. And after the greeting, he talked about that genuine faith considers trials as joys. And we spent a few weeks on that. That if you're a believer, you won't see trials as God's judgment or even temptation against you, but you see trials as a reason for joy because you know God is doing something in them. That he's in control and he's using these trials in your life. Then we looked at genuine faith receives the word, and that was the second half of chapter 1, and that a humble person receives the word and lives it out. And that is a characteristic of a true believer in genuine faith. And then third, in the section we're going to finish today, is genuine faith loves without favoritism. We're going to be looking at verses 8 to 13 and look at how genuine faith loves without favoritism. And this is a key passage, and I want to real briefly, in a minute here, review what we've covered so far in the last two times before we go on and look at what's being said this time. But um, we may think favoritism, okay, that's, that's kind of a minor issue, and it's not one that any of us really struggle with. Well, as we'll see today, it's not a minor issue at all. And if we examine our hearts, it's one that many of us, in fact, maybe all of us struggle with at times. But let's first look at the passage together. And I want to go through verses 1 to 13, the whole section, just so we make sure that we remember what the whole section is talking about. So let's read, and you can look along in your Bibles as I read. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit murder, but do commit, adult, if you, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs 
over judgment. So in this passage, in the very first verse, James introduces this topic of favoritism and says, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ in the attitude of personal favoritism. And he continues on that theme through these first 13 verses. You'll see he mentions uh, in the New American Standard, not favoritism, but the word partiality. It's the same word in the Greek in verse 9 again, but if you show partiality. And we see he is still addressing this topic. He usually starts a new topic with saying, my brothers, and he's not done that. So we're still talking about partiality here. And we saw in looking at verses 1 to 13 that we could break it down into this type of an outline. We saw in verse 1 that favoritism is incompatible with faith, and then favoritism is immoral in 2 to 4, irrational, 5 to 7, and then fourth, irreconcilable with God's law. And let me quickly review with you those first three points before we look at the fourth one today. And that is, first, favoritism is incompatible with faith. And we talked about in that first message that the literal translation of this verse would actually be the faith. And a literal reading would be, do not, with personal favoritism, hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one. And the point that James starts with right off the bat is the faith that you hold, the gospel truth that you believe in, is totally incompatible with favoritism, with judging someone on the outside, with looking at someone and saying, you're of the race that I'm familiar with, or you're of a social standing that, uh, that I respect, or you're of an economic status that's favorable, therefore I'm going to treat you better. Because is that how the gospel came to us? Did God treat any one of us more favorably because of how we look or how much money that we have or what race we are? Certainly not. It is totally incompatible with the gospel for us to behave in that way. So James makes it clear just even in the very first verse that favoritism can't be named as a Christian. One who has genuine faith does not have partiality in their life. Secondly, we saw in verses 2 to 4 that favoritism is immoral. And in 2 to 4, you recall that James gives this example of an assembly of believers. And in the assembly, in walks a rich man. And great attention is paid to the rich man. And rich man is given a favorable place to sit. But the poor man, well, poor man can sit on the ground. Or poor man just stand in the back. And he gives this illustration and then says, with this strong rhetorical question at the end of verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? To do that, to show partiality in that way, is to become a judge with an evil motive. Is to, in your heart, decide that person is not as good, not as important, because of any external characteristics, and in this case, economic status. So favoritism is certainly not a small thing. It's a product of evil thoughts, of evil motives. Therefore, it is absolutely immoral. And then last time, we looked at verses 5 to 7. And 5 to 7, showing favoritism is irrational. And he said, Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. And we see 
in this that God chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith. Now, he's not saying only the poor are chosen by God. And we looked at that fact. We looked at the fact that not all the poor are chosen by God or that there's any special merit in being poor. But the point he's making is God has a concern for the poor. They are needy and they are without hope in this world. And so he has a love and a compassion for them. He does not treat the poor any less than anyone who has money. And that could go for economically or that could even go for you know, race or uh, social status, any of those things as well. That God does not treat someone based on those things. They, the poor are not inherently better, but they are more needy, inherently more needy, and God loves and cares for them. And for us to pass them over or to treat anyone like that with, with less love or care is very opposite the heart of God. It is irrational to treat poor like that because it contradicts God's favor on the poor. And then we also saw in verse 6 to 7, it contradicts their own experience of oppression by the rich. He talks about, look, isn't that the rich who've oppressed you, personally dragged you into court, and then third, blasphemed the name of Christ? Why would we give honor to someone who blasphemes the very one that we're trying to honor? Those of us with genuine faith, we want to honor Christ above everything, don't we? To show honor to someone who blasphemes Christ, it's the height of irrationality. It doesn't make any sense. Why would I honor someone who does that? So strong argument again by James on why we cannot show favoritism. We cannot treat some people better based on external characteristics. Well, if that wasn't enough, verses 8 to 13, what we see today, makes it clear that favoritism is irreconcilable with God's law. And these first seven verses are, are very strong, and I think we can see that as we studied them. They're, they're strong statements against partiality. But I think in 8 to 13 is where James proverbially takes the gloves off. This is where he really drills down and says, you really need to understand the, the wickedness of partiality, the wickedness of viewing people on externals. And he explains to them the seriousness of this sin and the consequences that it brings. Now, as we look to 8 to 13, it may, at first glance, be almost that he's overstating the case. Boy, maybe, maybe this is a little strong. You're talking about murder, you're talking about adultery, and now you're talking about partiality mixed in with those kinds of things? I think, I think James, you're going overboard here. I mean, partiality, come on. It's not that big a deal, is it? Well, the problem is not that James has a wrong view, or actually the Holy Spirit-inspired words through the pen of James has the wrong view of the sin of partiality. It's that we tend to have a very wrong view of sin. We don't view sin for as bad as it really is. James is not the one. The Lord is not the one who gave us the scriptures who's making a mistake here. It's us if we don't understand how serious sin is. If you forget all that I say today, which probably a lot of you will, um, <laughs> but, it, but hold on to this one point. This one thing that I want to make sure you remember is 
how wicked sin is. How much of an affront it is to God and how much, therefore, you should hate it in your own life. We do a pretty good job, not always, pretty good job at hating sin in the world. We see sin in the world. Sometimes we don't hate it as much as we should in the world and we entertain ourselves with sinful things. But even times will groan at the sin of the world. Even first hour was mentioned about a church that was welcoming uh, drag queens. And there was an audible groan from the congregation. And that's right. You know, that is groan worthy, if that's a word. <laughs> and yet we'll find sin in our own lives and make excuses for it. Justify it. Like, yeah, it's, you know. That'll happen. God forgives type of attitude. And so we need to recognize our own sins. Sins like partiality. Or we can list a number of other sins that we can easily make excuses for and think them as nothing. But I want, as we look at this text today, not to take any sin lightly and to take it all seriously. In fact, in studying this, I want to get through this whole passage today because it has a lot to show us. But next month, the next time I'm able to, uh, to preach again, I just want to look at the topic of sin even more and, and really look at the, the horrific nature of sin because I think it has some very beneficial consequences for us doing so. But today, again, we want to look at verses uh, 8 to 13, and the logic in 8 to 13 is, is pretty straightforward. He talks in verses 8 to 9 that partiality is sin. He makes that very clear follows it up in verses 10 to 11 showing how sin is rebellion and then verses 12 to 13 that judgment is coming so that forms our outline for the day it's it's pretty straightforward partiality is sin in 8 and 9 sin is rebellion in 10 and 11 and then judgment is coming in verses 12 and 13 so let's start at the first point here partiality is sin and in verses 8 to 9, he says, If, however, you're fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. And so in these two verses, we will see that the law requires us to love one another. And then secondly, that partiality breaks that law of loving one another. So there's really two conditional clauses. Each verse is a conditional clause. Starts with an if statement, and then there's an implied then in the clause. If you're fulfilling the royal law, he explains it, then you're doing well. If you show partiality, then this. So we're going to see these two if-then statements. And really, you can think of it too as, uh, on the one hand, if this is true, this is good. On the other hand, if this is true, then this is the consequences. So first, looking at the first conditional clause here. He says, if you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture. And what does he mean here by royal law? Well, the word royal means kingly, as if it came from a king. And we know then, as, as believers, you're speaking to a church here, you talk about the law from the king. What king are we talking about? We're talking about the king of kings, aren't we? We're talking about Christ. We're talking about this is from God. This is his law that he's given us. And we are reminded here that it's from a king because we need to realize how serious it is. 
how important this is. This isn't some law that was created by some legislator somewhere, a group of legislators, and they came up with a dumb law. This is a law directly from the king. So James wants to make that clear. And, and if there was any confusion about it, it's according to the scriptures. Uh, this is where we find the law of the kingdom of God. This is where we know what God requires of us. So if they're coming from God, that means they're not optional. That means every one of God's laws need to be obeyed. Now he says, uh, fulfilling the royal law according to scriptures, and he mentions you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now some take this uh, saying, okay, is he talking about, when he talks about royal law then, is this he talking about this one law, you shall love your neighbors as yourself. This is the royal law. This is the most important one. Or is he saying something else? And I think it is wrong for us to think He's saying this is the royal law, this one, and only this one is the royal law. That's not what he's saying. This is the only one. In fact, as we see later, that would contradict the very point he's making of the importance of all the laws, of murder, of adultery, that these are equally as evil before God. So he's not saying this is the most important of God's laws. But he does say it's a, we see it as a royal law in the sense that it's a controlling principle of God's law. In a lot of ways, we know that a lot of commands can be subsumed under the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the man-to-man commands can be captured in this command, just as all the man-to-God commands can be captured in you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, we, see, we know that this was first, command was first given in Leviticus 19.18. We see this in the Old Testament law. But then we also know that Jesus repeated this in Matthew 22, verses 25 to 29. When a lawyer questioned him and asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost command. The second is like it, you shall love yourself. So again, Jesus is saying you can summarize these two aspects of the law, the man-to-God relationship and the man-to-man relationship in these two statements, love for God and love for others. And James, what he is doing then, as we've seen already, he's echoing the words of Christ. How many times does James repeat something that Christ has said? This is Jesus's half-brother. He heard a lot what Jesus has said, and he has calls him himself his, the slave of Jesus. So he recognizes it's not just his half-brother, but it's also his Lord. And so James will often repeat what Jesus has said here. Now, while we are familiar with this command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, we may say, oh yeah, I know that one. The second great command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, we can Rattle it off. I think even most people in the world is, are familiar with that statement. But isn't it true that sometimes we can get so familiar with the statement that we just read right past it without really thinking, what is this calling us to do? What is this requiring of us? And I know that can certainly be the case for me. So let's look again at this important command of Christ. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says you. 
It's very personal. It applies to each and every person. This isn't a plural. This is a singular. You must do this. You shall love. This is agape love. This isn't you shall have warm feelings for everybody. This isn't you shall be attracted to everybody. Those are different kinds of love. This is you have a purposeful, voluntary, sacrificial love. That's the kind of love we're talking about. And he says your neighbor. Now, as we know, Jesus made clear, who is your neighbor? He gave the parable of the Good Samaritan to remind them of the truth that, look, every person you come across is your neighbor. It's not just those of your own nationality. It's not just those of your own race or economic status that is your neighbor. Your neighbor refers to anyone you come across where you can demonstrate this kind of love. And the degree or manner of love is as yourself. You must love your neighbor as much as you innately love yourself. Now, some people will say that, well, see right here, it tells us how we have to love ourselves. This is a twofold command, a command to love others and a command to love ourselves. Uh, is that what this is saying? No, <laughs> it's not. Scripture assumes the reality that you already love yourself. That is already a given fact. You love yourself. Um, in Ephesians 5, 28 and 29, in the command for husbands to love their wives, he again refers to this loving your wife as your own body. And he says, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. That is... The natural thing that we do is we nourish and cherish our own bodies. Um, when we're hungry, what do we do? We get something to eat. Sometimes I'll eat when I'm not hungry as well. In fact, I nourish my body so well. <laughs> but, um, but we do. We, we take care of ourselves. If we touch something really hot, what do we do? We pull our hand away because, you know, we don't like getting hurt. We take care of ourselves. Uh, I appreciate John Street tells a story as he's talking about counseling and people who say they don't love themselves, that he had a counseling event with uh, a college student at TMU, and she was telling him in a counseling session one morning how, I don't love myself. I just don't love myself, and I can't love others because I don't love myself first. So he was trying to explain with her from Scripture, and then after the session, saw her in the cafeteria. And in the cafeteria, there's a salad bar there, and she was up at the salad bar looking at the bowl of strawberries, looking for the best strawberries, the ripest ones, that she could put on her plate to eat. Now, nothing's wrong with that, but what does it reveal? You love yourself, you know? <laughs> Why would you be doing that? I hate myself, therefore I'm taking the best ones. No, it's just natural. We love ourselves. So we don't have to be commanded to love ourselves. What we do need to be commanded to do is to love others at that same level. To be caring for them. We're anxious to find a seat using the illustration that James gives. Are we as concerned about others? Uh, finding a seat? And in particular, are we looking down on those who we think, mm, what are you doing in here? Or in any phase, do we look down on someone? And that is the kind of love that we're called to and the kind that we need to be commanded to do. 
Now we see the love that we're supposed to show, this agape love, best illustrated, of course, by Christ. Who is a better example who gave sacrificially and voluntarily and did so for those who did not deserve it? Christ certainly is the greatest, no better example. 1 John 3, 16-18, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. And Christ is our perfect example who laid his life down. He took action. That is the model for us, to also take action, to love others in the same way. And we would do well to regularly dwell just on this law that we know so well, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We would do well to think on that on a regular basis in the morning. Okay, this is my general command toward all other people. How am I f- going to fulfill this command to the honor of the Lord today? Loving your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, um, if you are fulfilling this royal law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. And there's probably more than a hint of sarcasm in this. You know, this is looking at someone and saying, okay, you're um, doing this and fulfilling this perfectly, then you're doing well. And he says that with some sarcasm because they haven't been. There has been partiality in the group, otherwise he wouldn't be addressing it. So he says then in this second conditional phrase, but if you show partiality... You're committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. So in contrast to the law of love, they were showing partiality, which is in direct violation to the law of you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And now James makes the point that he's been building to, and that is this. Partiality is a sin. Partiality is a sin. It's not just a breach of manners. Or a minor deficiency of character, or a faux pas, or a weakness, it is sin. And the word for sin is here is hamartian, which means missing the mark of the God's standard of righteousness. It is not living up to the perfect character of the Lord. And he says it is committing sin. To commit means to work or to accomplish. It means you're willfully doing something. You are willfully missing God's mark. So to show favoritism is failing to live according to God's righteous standard. It is sin. And as I mentioned, I want to talk about sin more next time as well, because sin is a word that rolls off our tongue pretty easily. And we can justify in our own lives if we're not careful. But sin is serious. Sin is horrific. And we know the wages of sin is death, right? Romans 6.23. And we know, at least in our minds, on paper, that sins, because of sin, there is physical death. We know because of sin, there is disease in this world. We know that sin has caused disruption in relationships, has caused every mess that you see in this world is because of sin. And more than that, Sin is what 
drove Christ to the cross. It is for our sin that He died on that cross. Jesus received lashes, got a crown of thorns, shoved on His head, had nails in His hands and feet because of sin. If there's nothing else that should cause us to hate sin, it's that. And not, again, just sin in the world, but sin in our own lives as well. And James says partiality is sin. It is that bad. He goes on to say you are, also if you show partiality, you're convicted by the law as transgressors. That you are found guilty as overstepping God's moral boundary. And we see the law is personified here, as if the law is bringing evidence against us. And he uses the term transgressor here. To transgress means to purposefully go against what God has commanded. And we know that's the very definition of sin. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Committing sin, by definition, is breaking God's law. And favoritism falls into that category. Favoritism is breaking God's law. Favoritism is not loving your neighbor as yourself. By treating someone a little more favorably than you would someone else because of what they look like, what they have, what they do, versus Christ's love for them is breaking God's law. And the point then is that partiality or favoritism, it's not a trivial matter. It is sin and it's breaking God's royal law. And James wants the readers and the Lord wants us to understand that. That partiality is sin and so we need to treat it seriously. Well, let's go on to see that not only do we understand that partiality is sin, but we need to understand that sin is rebellion. We have seen that God's law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, governs all person-to-person interaction and how it's broken in favoritism. And we see now uh, James to continue on on how any sin is rebellion against God. He says, "Forever, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. And here we see a hypothetical person presented. A person who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point. Um, And in the Greek, it actually emphasizes the word, the whole law. In the literal word order, it's for whoever the whole law keeps, but stumbles in one point becomes, of all of it, guilty. So this is a hypothetical hyperbole. It's not that, okay, here's a person that's actually doing this. It's keeping the whole law yet stumbles in one point. It's saying, even if this were to happen, Let's suppose a person were to keep the whole law and yet only stumble in one point. What is true then? Well, to stumble, first of all, stumble doesn't, is not necessarily a willful act, but it's an unintentional act. It is unintentional violation of the law. And the, old, the Mosaic law even had unintentional things where you could become unclean. But to stumble, so again, this is hyperbole. As he said, all of us willfully sin. We commit sin, and we're transgressors of the law. But let's suppose we have this individual, this whoever, 
who keeps the whole law and yet just one time mistakenly does something against the law. The consequence is he becomes guilty of all. He is guilty of all. And this does not mean that he's breaking every single part of the law, that you break once and you've broken each individual part, or that each violation is equally as serious. That we could say that, well, don't, aren't some sins like more serious with their consequences and things? Yes, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, once you stumble in one point, any one sin, you are under the whole law's condemning power. You are, by definition, a lawbreaker. You cannot say, well, it was only one little part of the law. It is the whole law you are now under. And he goes on to prove this. Why is this the case? Why do we say that one little violation, even a stumble, makes you guilty of the whole thing? And we see that then in the next part here. He says, for he who said do not commit murder also said do not, oh, he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. And here we see two of the Ten Commandments mentioned here, also repeated by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And why, why these two? Why adultery and murder? Well, perhaps because they're most egregious, the most evident, um, the most obvious of sins that we would see. But clearly we recognize those as clear sins. And we also know that they're violations of loving your neighbor as yourself. And here he changes language to say, you have become a transgressor of the law. From the whoever, he just said in verse 10, to drive the point home here and make the application personal. And says, if you have done this, you have become a transgressor, which is in the perfect tense. You've become one. Not you transgressed, not you were a transgressor, but you've become that. That is now who you are. You have become a transgressor by breaking the law. So whether it's adultery, murder, partiality, or any failure to love your neighbor as yourself, you become a lawbreaker. And his point is, his reasoning is this. Breaking any part of God's law, even stumbling by failing to love your neighbor, makes you guilty and subject to God's judgment. And again, there are no trivial sins. There are no small sins. There's no white lies. There's no sins that are not a big deal. Some sins are seriously grave, and maybe even graver than others, but there's no small ones. There's no trivial ones at all. And why is that? He says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, the point James is making is this. You break any, sin, any part of the law, one point, you have violated the lawbreaker's command. There is one person who has delivered the law, and that is God. And so whether you think it's a smaller matter of the law or a bigger matter of the law, there is one lawgiver. So any sin, therefore, is rebellion. It is saying, that's not important, God. That part that you said, that part's not important to me. I think perhaps um, preacher who said it best or 
said it very well as R.C. Sproul. And uh, he said this, Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin, of the most minute peccadillo? What are we saying to our Creator when we disobey Him at the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is no good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. R.C. Sproul calls it cosmic treason. And it's an apt description, or we can say rebellion. We need to understand that is what every sin is. It is treason or rebellion against God. And we often use James 2.10 in evangelistic presentations. And it's a good one to use, of course. If someone says that you're sharing the gospel with, well, I haven't done any serious sins. Uh, you know, I've lied a couple times or I've done something small. To say, wait a minute, any small sin is breaking God's law and you're guilty of the whole thing. And it is a, a great verse to use in those scenarios. But it's still true for us as well. It's just as true for us as it is to unbelievers we talk to. Every sin is breaking God's law. And we cannot discount our own sin. And I know even in counseling situations I've been in where one person has hurt another. You see, even in many marriage situations. And the betrayal and hurt that they have received has been significant and has been lamentable. But mixed in sometimes is, yeah, and I, and I sinned and was angry with them, but oh, how, how my husband hurt me. How my wife hurt me. But I, yeah, I sinned too, but what they did. Well, well, certainly your spouse's sin is important, but pass over your own sin is, oh yeah, but I, I also sinned, but wait a minute, you also sinned? Does that not grieve you? You are under the whole law's condemnation. You are in rebellion against the lawmaker. There is no excuse for sin. We never can say, I couldn't help but sin. If you're a believer, you have power over sin because Christ broke sin's power on the cross. So you are not, there's no temptation that has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. You don't have to sin. Romans 6 makes it clear you're no longer a slave to sin. And to say, oh yeah, I know I sinned in response, but what could I do? My spouse did this is absolutely an unbiblical response. you got to say, woe is me, Lord, for sinning in response. I, it is difficult to live with someone sinning against me. And, and it is hard. But to excuse my own sin for it is, is preposterous. It can't be done. And that is what the conclusion we must come to when we understand sin's rebellion against God and how much sin should grieve us. But even more, James goes on, verses 12 and 13, we need to see this as well, that judgment is coming. Because sin is as bad as it is, we should necessarily change the way that we live. 
And that is the conclusion that James comes to here, is how we should change the way we live. Truth brings consequences. And the truth that sin is rebellion against God should bring consequences in how we live our daily lives. He writes, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. So speak and so act. He puts that adverb there twice before each of these verbs for, for emphasis and an earnest appeal that he's making. Because sin is rebellion against God, that any one sin is violating the whole law, speak and act in this way. Therefore, speak and act carefully because you are going to be judged by the law of liberty. Now, speak and act are both in the present tense. And talk about ongoing actions. These need to be habitual actions in our life. But the emphasis here, it is on so speak and so act, but it's also for the right motive. How are we to speak and act? With this understanding in our minds, as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. What is the motive for how we speak and act? Are we looking towards the coming judgment in deciding how we speak and act? Now, obviously, there's a relationship between the sin of partiality and the, the rebellion that sin is and sin of partiality to judgment that is to come. He's still talking about the sin of partiality and saying, look, you will stand before God one day and there is a coming judgment and you should be careful that every word that you say and every action that you do has that in mind. The judging will come, it says, by the law of liberty. And the law of liberty is God's law as interpreted through the person and work of Christ in which obedience is made possible by the saving work of Christ. And we have seen, James uses a number of words for law, uh, even so far in chapters 1 and 2. He talks about the perfect law, how it sets forth God's righteous standard. The royal law, which we've already looked at today, it comes from the king with his authority. The whole law, it cannot be divided into pieces, and now the law of liberty, which he actually said earlier in 125 as well but emphasizes the freedom over sin's power. Now, these aren't four different laws that James is talking about. It's all the same law. He's just emphasizing different aspects of it, that this same royal law is also the law of liberty, that you have been given a law, but you have been given power through the work of Christ because of what Jesus did on the cross, that you obey not out of fear of doing enough good works, but it is a law of liberty. You obey because you love the one who has saved you. It is a, liberty, a law of liberty in that you obey freely, wanting to. You want to obey the one who has saved you. And these descriptions are what James uses to distinguish it from the Mosaic law. You could not describe the Mosaic law in all these ways, the law of liberty but we can for the law that we're under. And it is this law that we are to be judged by. Now we think, well, judged, what are we talking about here? Which judgment is he talking about? Are all people, whether believer or unbeliever, undergoing the same judgment? And Scripture reveals to us that no, we undergo different judgments. There is what's called the great white throne judgment. That's talked about in Revelation 20 and many other places in Scriptures as well. 
where those who do not have genuine faith will be cast into hell, will face God's wrath. As believers, you have already passed out of that judgment. You will not face that judgment because Christ's atoning work, His perfect life already stands in your place. But believer, you still will stand before God one day. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about this. Um, We see it in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10 as well. That we will all stand before God one day for rewards on whether what we have done have come from a pure heart. On whether they are works that we burned up like wood, hand, stubble. Or if they will be works that will receive a reward. There is a coming judgment. And James doesn't just speak of one of the two judgments here. He's just saying, look, all, everybody is going to face judgment one day. All of us will stand before God one day. And we need to be ready when that comes. It's similar to in Hebrews 9.27, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. There is an eschatological judgment that's coming for all of us. Every person will face some kind of judgment. Because this is true, as you sit there right now, knowing you will stand before God one day, act and speak in ways that will honor Him. Act and speak in ways that don't show partiality. Act in ways that show that you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Because you do not want to stand before God one day having willingly violated His law. This judgment, one commentator, Joseph Mayer, described it this way, it will be a deeper going judgment than that of man. For it will not stop short at particular precepts or even at the outward act, whatever it may be, but will penetrate to the temper and motive. On the other hand, It sweeps away all anxious questioning as to the exact performance of each separate precept. If there has been in you the true spirit of love to God and love to man, that is accepted as the real fulfillment of the law. What he's getting at here is God's judgment does not just look at the outward, but it looks at your heart and it looks at your motive. Now that can be a very scary thing for sure because we can... We can fake things, fake being nice to people when our heart's not there. But it should be a very encouraging thing too because sometimes you are trying to show love to someone and you just fumble it and you, know, you say something stupid. Well, God knows uh, that you're trying to demonstrate love. But that is the deep going judgment that we will face one day. And finally, verse 13. There's the encouragement, warning and encouragement. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's what we can expect in the coming judgment. Christ made it clear what judgment will look like. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And in Matthew 6.15, if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. If you do not show mercy to others, if you have not shown love to others and you continue to show partiality, then you demonstrate a heart that does not have genuine faith. You demonstrate a heart that's never been transformed by the work of Christ. 
if you don't show mercy, if that's characteristic of your life, you've never known God's mercy in your own life. And you will face God's wrath one day. And I'd be foolish to think that every person in here is right with God in a room this size. Evaluate that. Am I one that God has shown mercy to? But if you are one that shows mercy to others, we will find this, mercy triumphs over judgment. And what that's speaking to here is certainly God's mercy is great, but this is looking at our mercy toward one another. If we are people that demonstrate mercy to other people, then we will have triumph in the day of judgment. We will not face God's wrath one day. We will be able to rejoice with the Lord because His mercy is so great. And it shows, again, in our showing mercy to others that His mercy has been real in our lives. So it's a test of genuine faith. These verses, 1 to 13, it's a mark of genuine faith. Do you show partiality? He draws it to this conclusion here that, look, if you are one that does not, you do not have genuine faith. Now, believers, we need to act like believers, right? If we have shown mercy, then let that be true in our lives. Let it be true that we are showing mercy, that we are loving our neighbor as ourselves. So application, pretty pretty clear, pretty straightforward. First, confess your mistakes for what they really are, that they're sin. When you have time with the Lord and you look at your day, look at things that you've said to your children, to your spouse, to your coworker, whoever it is, don't look at maybe hurtful things you've said as merely mistakes or faux pas or trivial matters see them as sin call sin for what it is in your life it's not a personality flaw it's not due to circumstances beyond your control it is sin and be brutal with yourself in doing that and recognize that you have when you have done those things when you have sinned you have said god my way is better than yours And confess that to God. And praise God, He forgives you for that. If you come with a heart of repentance, you will be forgiven. Secondly, love others as fulfillment of God's law. Don't overlook this command as, yeah, we know that, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Really make that true in your life. Live that out. God has shown great love to you. Let us love others in fulfilling God's law, even those who don't love you first, even those who are unkind to you, even your spouse, even if there are times when you will need to love your spouse, even when your spouse has not been a lovable person. But that is fulfillment of God's law. That you're more like Christ like that than when you're loving your friends when you're loving people that are easy to love, loving those that are difficult to love and having the mercy that is shown to you. And then finally, speak and act with an eye towards coming judgment. Keep your heart fixed on eternity. Remember 
how short this life is compared to eternity. We will all stand before God one day. There is a coming judgment. Live in light of that fact. The trivial things of this life will fade away pretty quickly when we're standing before the Lord. So live in light of that coming judgment. James' section here on partiality, um, again, may seem like a small sin, may seem like not a big deal. And we may think a lot of sins are no big deal, but you know what? They are to God. So let's be vigilant in killing those sins, putting off those sinful actions in our life, and living in ways that honor the Lord. And praise God for His forgiveness when we do blow it. All right. Well, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, and even for this to come the same day as a communion service, where we celebrated that Christ died on the cross for our sin. Lord, we drank the juice and ate the bread to remember the sacrifice of Christ because our sin required that, that death of the perfect Son of God. Lord, may that reality of Christ's death and resurrection cause us to hate sin all the more. Lord, I pray that we would strive as as those who have genuine faith, as those who know you, to love others as ourselves, that we would get our eyes off our own wants and desires, and how can we show Christ's love to other people around us? God, make us more like our Savior. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.